What's up, advocates? Welcome to today's episode of Make Them Hear You. What gives you the right? Today, we're going to get right to the heart of the biggest controversy in the treatment of people with a diagnosis of severe mental illness, involuntary treatment, and what gives another person the right to intervene when their loved one is not willing to seek or accept treatment. This, more than any other issue, is the determinant for what our systems of treatment look like. It affects what our laws allow, and it also affects how people choose to interpret and implement those laws. Some individuals and groups believe that involuntary treatment should never be an option, and other individuals and groups believe that at times, it is both necessary and compassionate to intervene when our loved ones are not willing to seek or accept treatment due to the symptoms of their illnesses. It's a heated debate since it involves the curtailment of individual liberties. I can say from personal experience that being willing to say that there is a place for involuntary treatment means being accused of wanting to lock everyone with mental illness up, of wanting to bring back the snake pit asylums of the 50s and other offensive things that are enraging to family members whose motivation is always to alleviate the suffering of my loved one and heal my family. A lot of conversation about involuntary treatment is very legalistic and focuses on rights intruded upon at a moment in time. We're going to focus on what the absence of involuntary treatment as an option actually looks like over the course of a person's life. What is the consequence of prioritizing a choice made by a systematic mind over the future well-being and medical prognosis of that person? We're going to examine these issues through the experiences of caregiver and big sister, Patricia Bennett. I met Patricia's brother, John, when I was serving as a public defender in Georgia, and his decades-long story is a window into what it's like to watch a loved one struggle with untreated severe mental illness when involuntary treatment isn't an option or is used in a revolving door fashion due to the laws we've passed or how we choose to implement them. Patricia's younger brother, John Bennett, was shot by police while in psychosis in 1975. Since then, he has cycled in and out of jail and homelessness for 46 years. And 46 years later, police and involuntary commitment remains his primary access to treatment. Today, we will also speak to activist and psychiatrist Dr. Lloyd Setterer, who served for 12 years as the chief medical officer of the New York State Office of Mental Health, I'm an advocate because, like Patricia, my loved one's introduction to the mental health care system was in the back of a police car. When there are zero resources, community, medical, or otherwise, for our untreated loved ones, police and involuntary treatment become our only options. Patricia and John's story is not only my story. It's the story of why Treatment Advocacy Center was founded. It's the story of my colleagues fellow advocates, parents, and caregivers that I've worked with for nearly 20 years. The broken system is what gives us the right to advocate for treatment for our loved ones. Patricia Bennett is a widow journalist from South Carolina. She is a semi-retired investigative reporter. In spite of managing treatment for her brother John, who suffers from untreated paranoid schizophrenia, Patricia has lived a good life. I'm almost totally retired. I worked in local news all my career and then I worked for PBS in South Carolina as a producer 
for many years and I've done radio for lots of years. So talking to people like, like Nikki Giovanni and I've interviewed Reverend Al, of course, and Oprah Winfrey. And I mean, I've just had just access to a lot of people talking to them. And then just the everyday people that I've talked to. I've learned a lot from just being able to interview all kinds of different people and really having to put myself into other people's shoes long enough so I could extract information from them. So I've, I've, had, I've had a very good career. I have no complaints about my life and what I've had access to. Even before John's diagnosis, Patricia and her older sister were caregivers. My older sister was, we're only two years apart. And I was kind of take charge. So we were on kind of even keel. Uh, and John is six years younger than I am. And uh, we were very protective of him. You know, interestingly, it, initially it was my sister. My older sister, who was even more protective of John, we kind of changed roles as uh, we got older, and I became a bit more protective. He was the best running back uh, Greenville High School had. He was always in the in the paper. He was always uh, talked about. He initially went to South Carolina State University. He was on a football scholarship. He stayed at the, at South Carolina State University the longest time. You know, I, I think generally speaking, when you think about it, we didn't have exposure to the possibilities of what we could do when we got out of college. We were just very fortunate to have other people in our lives that would direct us and say, you should go to college. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, all three of us went to college. For three Black children growing up in the 60s in South Carolina, college was an amazing feat. All three of the siblings attended college when their mother did not. At a time when so many Black people were disconnected from access to education, the Bennett family was being set up for success. What you're talking about is an effort in the past 10 years or so to understand what are called the social determinants of health and mental health. That your zip code is more a predictor of the kind of care, your health status, than is your illness. What were the Bennett family's social determinants of health in the 60s and 70s? Conditions in the places where they lived, worked, learned, and played would have affected their health risks and outcomes. Fifty years ago, most Black people were indeed trapped in poverty. And like today, racism was a daily obstacle. Well, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't the worst. It was relatively ordinary for poor people. You have to realize you're talking about late 60s, early 70s. I graduated from high school in 1970. My sister graduated in 1968. She went to college in South Carolina, Mars College, a predominantly black church type college. And she graduated, did well, taught for many, many years. I had people in my life in high school who said, okay, you need to broaden your horizon. So I went to Oberlin on scholarship. My mom was very determined that we were all going to get a, an education. She did graduate from high school. My mom did, even though she did not go to college. But for her, getting an education for us was the ultimate. And she made sure that happened as much as she could. And then she had other people in the community or in our lives that helped out. John was the youngest, a football star, and the last to attend college. But a year after Patricia graduated, things changed. 
John transferred from college to college, struggled, and eventually dropped out altogether. He was in college, and things were just going all wrong. He, he, when he came home, he was there with my mom, and she didn't know what was happening. He would be doing certain things. He would t be talking about certain things that made absolutely no sense. And uh, she was trying to figure out what was going on. Yeah. I don't think actually my mom told us exactly what was going on initially. I, I knew she was scared. I knew she was nervous. She did tell us at one point the kinds of things that John would do and would say. He was shot by the police because he had threatened to burn my mother's house down. And so she called the police. And when they got there, they said that John had a stick. And so they shot John in the neck. So I kind of started trying to do what I could for John, even though I didn't know anything about mental illness at the time. Knowing nothing about mental illness is where many family members enter the system. Unlike other systems, the mental health system does not get easier to navigate once you understand it. And medical professionals usually don't provide family members with a single detail about their loved one's diagnosis. Depending on where your loved one enters the system, the structural response to each psychosis crisis or emergency might be completely different from the last. When we realized John was first ill, and this was in a situation where law enforcement was involved. I was the one that was doing most of the talking and trying to answer questions and getting really, just really infuriated that, that the, the law enforcement wasn't really paying us any attention. You know, they didn't really do anything. So I remember from that really early day to saying, okay, you're going to have to speak up and talk and deal with this in some kind of way, even though, like I said, I had no clue about mental illness and didn't have a clue what to do. As a result, we watch our loved ones deteriorate and are forced to accept involuntary treatment in the face of harm as a resource tool. The decision to make that call is never easy. We balance the rights of our loved ones, the livelihood of our family, and the stability of our community. For me, personally, involuntary treatment was my right to connect my loved one back to their potential so they could live a life without harming themselves and without harming others. I have the right to keep my loved one safe. It's time for the medical system to exercise their right to make the experience trauma-free and recovery-focused. The, the, the term that they used was paranoid schizophrenia. And I don't know that I necessarily reacted so much to that term as the fact that John had to be put away in the state mental hospital here in South Carolina. So I didn't really react to the word. I, I, I reacted to the fact that he was in such bad mental health or that he was so sick until he had to be put away into this place that we'd known our, all our lives as Bull Street. And Bull Street was where crazy folk went. The South Carolina State Hospital was located at 2100 Bull Street in Columbia, South Carolina. Hence the colloquial name, Bull Street. The stigma of a loved one being at such a facility in that time in American history would have been overwhelming. I'm not only talking about what the neighbors might have said. I'm talking about the stories you've heard fictionalized accounts in literature and movies that often comes from true-life barbaric mistreatment of patients. 
If someone you loved was a patient at Bull Street, you weren't sleeping well thinking about them being there. Your brother was going to this stigmatized place. He was being put away, not cared for in your mind? Oh yeah, definitely. He was definitely being put away. Well, there was no reputation for Bull Street that said, okay, when you go to Bull Street, you're going to be taken care of and you're going to come away a better person. That wasn't the reputation for Bull Street. The, the reputation for Bull Street was that these are crazy people in here and they have to be tied down, essentially. How have you been able to face that during the beginning of your family's discovery of paranoid schizophrenia, not knowing what to do, law enforcement shot him the first time your mother called for help, and then for the next 40 years, law enforcement would be his first responder. How have you been able to respond to that? I say this all the time. We have kind of a love-hate relationship with law enforcement. Shooting John was, was absolutely terrible, I think was uncalled for. They obviously didn't know how to, and still to this day don't, don't know how to handle people who have mental illness and the country has not reacted in a way that would put together the teams that they need to have to deal with people with mental illness. When untreated severe mental illness enters the family, involuntary treatment follows, and then police. We advocate so that treatment laws allow an individual in need of involuntary evaluation or treatment services to receive timely care for a sufficient duration in a matter that enables and promotes long-term stabilization. We don't want our loved ones confined. We want them well. When Patricia says they don't know how to handle people with mental illness, she is not only talking about police, but the entire system. It's not a system. It is a patchwork. It's a mosaic of different services, different authorities, different funding, and very independent services and funding so that a person may get a hospital care, but then they have no aftercare. They have no outpatient care because it's not a continuous provision of services, which is what a system would do. The Treatment Adequacy Center has called this patchwork at least 56 different experiments. Each state, city, county, or region sets their own standards and priorities and fail to communicate with each other. He went all over the country. He was in Georgia, California, Kansas, Missouri. John has a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia, meaning he's prone to delusions and psychosis. And it's those delusions and psychosis, not self-determination, that motivated him to travel across the country where he and Patricia have experienced this patchwork of a system firsthand. There were several stories that John had in his brain. For a while, he was going to California so he could meet with Michael Jackson. So that was the, probably the story at that time, but that he was going to California. A delusion is a false personal belief that is not subject to reason. It cannot be contradicted by evidence of any kind. Delusions are common in psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia. Our loved ones, when treated, rarely believe the bizarre things they say and do while experiencing delusions. And in John's delusion to get to Michael Jackson, while in psychosis, there was no stopping him. He was free to roam to 10 different states, and in each state, he encountered a different type of mental health system, yet a fairly consistent criminal system. As family members, 
This is where our dilemma begins. Knowing he'll be arrested, knowing he's in poor health, does John have the right to follow delusions that he wouldn't otherwise believe if he were well? Does Patricia have the right to intervene to keep him safe? And John, as many times as John has been in and out of jail, he could very easily be dead by now. So I'm just thankful that he's not dead. For families like mine, thankful our loved one isn't dead is a default medical standard. Our loved ones engage in harmful experiences they would never consider if they were well. We turn our lives upside down to get them help and keep them safe from harm. It can tear relationships apart. Brooke Gentry, another caregiver on staff at the Treatment Advocacy Center, has also had to make the choice of involuntary treatment. She responds that, wanting to repair the parts of our family that have been broken by my sister's severe mental illness gives me the right. Wanting to reunite my family and regain a sister gives me the right. For example, John was on a train coming back to South Carolina at one point because I had said, John, you need to get back home so we can get you some help. And I had sent him some money. He was acting strange on the train. They threw him off the train and somewhere in Virginia. And he was roaming around in Virginia and a law enforcement person called me at four o'clock in the morning and said, this man says that you're his sister and he's just roaming around. And I'm like, you know, they could have killed him there, but instead this law enforcement person called me and said, what can we do? And he actually took John to a hotel. When I asked Dr. Setterer, what got him involved with severe mental illness specifically? He tells me about exercising his right to save a woman from the freezing cold of New York City streets. My first story, actual story, because I was so angry, so frustrated, just like you must get. And it was titled something like, what does it take to get something done? Hmm. And I portrayed an evening on a very cold winter night that I had gone out with an outreach team in the city to find people who might freeze to death on the streets. And we happened upon a woman, an older woman, on the top of church stairs with a nightgown on, one slipper, very psychotic, and she was going to die on those stairs if we didn't get her off. She had nothing on virtually, and so it was a very dangerous situation. And after a while, there were three police cruisers. There was the desk sergeant on the phone. There were two ambulances and me and a few other people on outreach. And I had authority over the police because in New York City on a night where it's below 32 degrees, the regulatory apparatus, which is code blue, puts the mental health commissioner in charge of the police around mental health issues and people who may need containment for mental health reasons. So they didn't believe that at first. And so there was all of this to do and calling headquarters and stuff. 
Finally, what made a difference was I said, I'm not leaving here till we get her off the stairs. And that was <laughs> troubling to them because I was there. I had authority over them and it was not going to look good in the police department if in the end I spent the night with this woman and she was dead in the morning. First, she started yelling, but then when we at the top of the stairs, we surrounded her and she just came down the stairs into a warm ambulance and we took it to the hospital. But the amount of resources necessary at night to bring one person off the streets, but importantly, to keep that one person alive was extraordinary. And it just said to me, boy, uh, we have to do a lot better than this. And that was why I titled it, What Does It Take to Get Something Done? As family members, we know our loved ones would rather be saved than tempt death in the name of their rights. So why does it take life or death to get something done? I want to pivot a little bit and talk about the advocates who are no involuntary treatment and no coercion ever. It took a very long time for me to understand that stance. And it wasn't until I compared it to race and the history of racism in America. And I thought, oh, we're telling them the laws keep you safe now. And they're like, no way, never again. And I got it. I, I understand. With the asylums and the poor treatment, there was no truth and reconciliation for people with diagnosis for the way the government handled that. Do you see those parallels? And are we only fighting history or are we also fighting something else when we're at odds with some people, of course, need involuntary treatment at some point, And then there are advocates who say, absolutely not. And then we come up with the term dying with your rights on. <laughs> right. I hope people are listening to you because what you just said was so wise and so experienced. So listen to her because she's telling you how it is. And that dilemma is one I struggled with because I care for patients. I ran a hospital. I ran 22 hospitals. And... I came to the same point, I think, that you were implying, which is you have to have some hospitals. You need some involuntary care to get started. But the danger of that, and I think that's what is such a deterrent to people going for care, is that it's typically traumatizing in a different way from race, but it is traumatizing. You're treated in a type of dehumanized way. You have no rights. Your possessions are taken and on and on. And if you wind up going wild in, in restraints, restraints are unbelievably traumatic, particularly to those people who were traumatized as children, who were beaten or neglected. So it is about an environment that doesn't traumatize people. It is about a, what's called a trauma-informed environment that the clinicians are aware and, and mindful of the fact that Lloyd was beaten as a kid, Lloyd was hospitalized twice against his will, was thrown into jail. Lloyd's going to be particularly sensitive to anything you do that's controlling. 46 years ago, John was shot by his first responders. A deeply traumatizing experience. John lacks insight and is too sick to volunteer for services and resources. 
Currently, involuntary treatment laws all over the country shield John from any care that he does not ask for. Anti-coercion advocates consider that a successful system, but have John's actual rights been protected? How would you describe this life, your life, his life? I always feel tearful about what I imagine could have been for me and my brother. Mm-hmm. You know, growing old together and being able to talk and having some of the same memories, those kind of things. So I, I can't imagine how it could have been. I've had none of that. So it's pain for me on that level. I, I can't complain about my life, though. I've had, I've had a good life. I've had some really good times. I've been very fortunate. I do have pain about my brother's life, though. I really do have pain. I remember I was so proud of John. When I went off to college, I took a picture of my brother with me. Hmm. I don't think I had a picture of anybody else. You know, I didn't. I had a picture of my brother. His picture was in my dorm room. And I look back now, I have one of his pictures when he was in high school. I think it was his senior year. And this was in the 70s during the time when when it was super fly look. And he had the bright yellow pants and the bright patterned shirt and he was he looked great and I and I always think of the fact that I saw him in that light and and I just thought we mature together I, I really did for years this was Patricia's routine her brother would express a delusion she would try to compel him not to act on that delusion wanting to travel to California to meet Michael Jackson is not recognized as harm meaning no one can receive involuntary treatment based on that alone. But in reality, what John wants is extremely harmful. So harmful that instead of maturing together, Patricia has been forced to play a brutal game of where will John turn up and will he be alive for almost 20 years. The game the medical system plays with our loved one's rights to be well is what gives us the right as family members. Like our family liaison director Kathy Day says, my loved one has been ill and has been in and out of the hospital frequently in the past decade. This is no quality of life for him or for anyone. Since he is too sick to know he is sick, I have the right to seek the best care on his behalf. That's the respectful thing to do. In all these many years that John has been sick and roaming all over the country and doing all kinds of things, I mean, like I said, I've had terrible situations. Really what is typical is that they really don't want to have to deal with people who are mentally ill. They don't want to pay for taking care of them. They don't really want to find them a facility to take care of them. They just want to get rid of them. So that was the effort was to get him shipped out of there some kind of way. This is the broken part. Patricia is happy that her brother is alive. Happy that a police officer put him in a hotel. It feels kind, but it's also not treatment. John touched someone who could have gotten him closer to medical care, but it did not create an entry point into this broken system. I sent John money so he could go to the hotel and stay until he could get some way back to South Carolina. So that was a positive situation. I know law enforcement is not always good when it comes to mentally ill people. But sometimes they're just caring, understanding people who, who will help. Maybe there's some romanticized Jack Kerouac image of John hopping trains and meeting musicians, exercising his right to live a life free from the mundane. But that is the fantasy of severe mental illness. 
Society has this Benny and June idea that our loved ones are not sick. They're just misunderstood. That at the heart of their illness, they are bold, unorthodox decision makers. Their reckless abandon is a cathartic fever dream. Like I said, I would hear from him when the police would call me. Everywhere he went, I would hear from the police because he was, uh, he was, uh, he was like he, one place he went to into a Burger King, and I don't know how he looked, I don't know how he smelled because he hadn't had any place to stay. And of course, the people in Burger King, I guess they just got tired of seeing him come in there every day, so they called the police, and of course, the police called me, and that happened all over the country. While it's true that our loved ones face stigma, discrimination and basic misunderstanding. Patricia and John are living in crisis, not a romantic travel fantasy. There's no cohesive medical system to help John connect to services or to connect John to his sister. John has not lived a life of self-determination. He's wandered from one siloed institution to the next with more incarceration than comprehensive health care. One solution, which probably... I'll have fewer friends than I already do for saying is that there are two principal types of organizational structure. One is called vertical and one is called horizontal. And the mental health system is more horizontal. It is about a whole long chain of services that exist independently. Some of them communicate with some others, but there's no organizing principle and there's no command and control. It's this lack of communication, lack of a system that would allow an officer to call a sister hundreds of miles away instead of going directly to a medical facility. It's the kind of unbuilt system that fosters marginalization, involuntary treatment, and criminalization. He was on his way on a bus. I don't know if he was actually coming all the way from California, but he was coming from Atlanta at the time. And the bus driver said that, the, that he attacked him with a knife. Turns out it was a, it was a um, butter knife or something. Mm. And I don't think the bus driver was injured or terribly injured, but John uh, reportedly did assault the bus driver. And so he went to jail. He, he went to trial. He was guilty, but insane. And so that's when he was sent to Millageville. For 10 years, John roamed the country. Then he has this encounter on a bus. He's found guilty, but mentally ill. Because of John's sentence, he's required to stay in Georgia, in the state hospital. He couldn't be moved closer to his family. So for 12 years, Patricia made the trip from South Carolina to visit her brother. Initially, my older sister would drive from Greenville with my mom because my mom didn't drive. And so we did that for a few years. I think my sister was getting progressively more ill at that time. She decided that she didn't want to do it anymore. And so what I would do the last few years, I would drive from Columbia to Greenville and all the way to Augusta. And I would make that round trip at least once a month so that my mom could see John. Before they got John on the right medicine, he was angry. We would just try to talk with him and, and be as calm with him as we could possibly be. As the years went on, it took them years to get him on a medication where he wasn't just aggressive. Then the conversation got a little better and we would, we would be able to talk about things, talk about life in general. 
After a 12-year sentence, John can finally go back home, pursue his true desires, and make decisions for himself. However, since John had the right to abandon his education and development, spend 10 years in psychosis, roaming from state to state, and another 12 years in a mental health facility in Georgia, what are his choices now that he's well? John is a black man in the South with a felony criminal record and two decades with no history. No renting history, no working history, not even a friendship history. How is he supposed to access a self-determined life? I was going through it at that time. I had a significant other that had, was addicted. I had a brother who was schizophrenic and I had a mom who had Alzheimer's all in the same house wow. and I was going crazy. <laughs> so it was, well. uh, it was a time, but anyway, after I got my mom situated and got her settled and, and got everything taken care of with her and got moved into a stable situation, I helped John get into supportive housing. There was hope in supportive housing. Supportive housing is a combination of housing and services intended to help people live more stable, productive lives in their own community. And John's supportive housing came with monitored daily treatment. It was successful. For the first time in a long time, he was independent. He was well. It was through the Department of Mental Health here. And it was on Carter Street, so they called it Carter Street Housing. And he was there for maybe, I don't know, I'm not sure, two, three years. I'm not sure how long it was at this point. Things were going relatively well there. He was stable. And then that's when these brilliant legislators decided they weren't going to pay for that anymore. So they stopped paying for the facility and supposedly put John and the people who live there in apartments in the community with no support, which was just, I mean, it was just asinine. This is not only asinine, it's devastating. Supportive housing with monitored treatment gave John access to a quality of life. Without monitored treatment, family members and advocates know how this story goes. John was in an apartment by himself. He decompensated and, and decided he was going to leave again. Mm. So he started roaming around the country. Off his medication, no supportive housing, John boarded a bus and again followed his delusions back to Georgia. It was interesting, too. One family called me. John was somewhere in Georgia. And the lady called me and she said, this man is sitting on my porch and he comes back and forth and sits on my porch and he thinks he's in Greenville. And I knew something was wrong with him and he gave me your number, so I, I called you. I just talked to them on the phone once. She was a, a nice young lady, and she said, you know, I know something's wrong with me. You haven't done anything, but I know something is wrong. And, and so I asked her if she could call mental health. She sounded like a really, just a nice person, trying to help as much as she could. And give or take 10 years later, this is where I entered. I was working as a public defender, and my firm was assigned a client by the court. I remember the language of the assignment was something like belligerent and uncooperative. I was surprised when I arrived to the jail and had to go to the infirmary to meet the belligerent client. The moment I saw John, I knew I was staring at a man with an illness. His hair was matted. His shirt was unbuttoned and askew from the rest of his jumpsuit. There were open sores on his feet and other places on his body. But for me, it was his eyes. 
The second I saw John's eyes, I could not believe the language that was being used to describe him aggressive, belligerent. I saw him and I said, this man is sick. Mm-hmm. Why is everyone treating this like it's something else? Yeah, you can see it in his eyes. I, I know. No, we know <laughs> those look, eyes. Yeah, we know those eyes. <laughs> yes, we do. And I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, my, you know, I feel it in my stomach when I see the when I see his eyes. Like, I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the prosecutor fought me so hard that this woman was absolutely terrified. And I was like, she couldn't tell he was sick. Do you, can't you tell he's sick? And they tried to just fight me so hard on it. It's simple. Our justice system lacks justice, especially for individuals with a diagnosis of severe mental illness. We heard Patricia tell us the woman wanted John to get help. She was a good Samaritan who engaged with John and found out how to contact his sister. But once the arresting officer arrived and chose jail over hospital, that was it. The good Samaritan who called Patricia became a victim of trespassing and John a criminal. I remember the prosecutor on John's case kept insisting that the victim was terrified, just terrified, and therefore there was no way for him to drop the charges. When I saw John, I saw someone who was clearly in need of medical help. The prosecutor could not or did not want to see the same. I don't understand why people give up if someone as sick as John. I can remember his eyes right now, his disposition. There was even some sort of connectivity in his questions. He kept asking me what gave us the right. And I was just like, I have to get this man help. I don't know why no one else. Why is everybody else pretending they don't know he's sick? Uh, Yeah. And he kept asking, what gives you the right? And I'm just trying to get him to tell me the basics, name from what happened. And he's saying, what gives you the right? And I say the state of Georgia. And that's when he finally goes, what do you mean? This is South Carolina. And oh, I exhaled. I, I was like, thank goodness you did that. Because had you not said that out loud, you would have just been a belligerent, black man trespassing. Yeah. Even with all our knowledge and wisdom in this courtroom, everyone would have looked at you as a simple criminal being belligerent. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the key. His belligerence was he he wanted to know why he was in handcuffs. He wanted to know right. why he was in this room. Yeah. Yeah, that's his his mind is like Fighting, like, what? The whole world is against me. What is this? I I mean, I I, I hear. I hear. I understand because I've seen it. For me, the interaction was, I'm like, these guards, you don't see that this man is utterly sincere. Right. Yeah, he is. I mean, that's where his mind is. That's where his mind is. Nothing in his mind thought he was not. Now, tell me about this porch. He thought he was in South Carolina on your mother's porch. Yeah. Was that a meeting place? Was it special? I, I know South Carolina, and I love sort of that architecture and the long, r- big wraparound porches. Probably antebellum, but, you know, they're yeah. still beautiful. Yeah, that's kind of Charles and <laughs> antebellum. Yeah, in, in the upstate, my mom did have a nice big porch, though, and she loved it. We're from the country, so we loved sitting on the porch. So that's what we did, you know, most of the time. And so that's what John knew about my mother and her 
chairs and her flowers on the front porch. And uh, so that's what he, they would do. They would sit on the front porch. Yeah, I can't. I don't know how this house looked or anything, but if it looked anything like my mother's house, he would have. He would have gravitated toward it. I can believe that. Right, those southern nights, fireflies, yeah. crickets, yeah. and cicadas. Yeah, <laughs> I'd want to be on the porch too. After the competency restoration, John was released to his own devices. No healthcare plan. No follow up. No peers. No sister. Eventually, he was rearrested. Patricia isn't sure what happened. But now, at 62 years old, for her and her brother, the cycle continues. John is at the hospital in Georgia now in Columbus. And while he's not angry and aggressive and ranting and raving, he's still very ill. He's in his 60s now. He's lived a hard life, sleeping outdoors, sleeping God knows where for many, many years. And so now he's physically in bad shape. He talks about being in pain, talks about walking stooped over and all those kind of things that would happen to anybody if you don't take care of yourself. And he blames it on the medication. And of course, as soon as he's not being monitored, he's going to go off that medication and he's going to be as mentally ill as he's ever been. He's going to be delusional as he's ever been. He's going to be as paranoid as he's ever been. He's, he's still not stable, even though he's on medication and in that hospital. How many times were you able to speak to a professional on his behalf and as his caregiver? And what was that experience like? Well, I've talked to social workers on the phone many, many times. I've talked to the doctor that was here in Columbia that he would go to see. From the doctors, I just never got any true sense of of empathy or there was just never a, you know, we are a team, we're going to work on this. None of that. I've never been in a, a really good situation with a doctor where I really thought that they cared about the sick person. I just, I've just never been there. The social workers that I've worked with, they seem a little more caring, but not the doctors. What did it feel like? It didn't feel like a caring team effort. What did it feel like? It felt like this doctor saying, well, this person is crazy. I'm going to give him some medication. That's all we can do. Done deal. Bye. Patricia is not alone in this take on medical professionals. The medical system has abandoned our loved ones and dismissed us as caregivers. They are what makes the system broken. That's what gives us the right to advocate for our loved ones. But Dr. Lloyd reminds us to stay hopeful. And this is not because they're bad clinics or bad doctors or psychologists, social workers. It's because they are so overwhelmed, they have far more patients to serve than their staffing permits. They don't have uh, crisis services. So when somebody shows up, it's not just a regular appointment, it's a very time consuming appointment. And then there are all the troubles of an overwhelmed system, an overworked system. So if you're trying to keep Lloyd from being hospitalized, 
you see he's getting sick again and you want to uh, get him an outpatient appointment, you'll maybe be able to get one in six weeks with a social worker and then a month later, maybe with a psychiatrist. That is not access because when I'm that ill, unless I'm responded to in the moment, that's it. In six weeks, am I going to remember even that I have an appointment? Even if my mother or my sister tells me, oh, I said what? So it is about seizing the moment. Access is about seizing the moment. For Patricia, the priority is simple. We need a well-funded place for our loved ones to be. The housing is critical, and we don't have that housing and we don't have those professionals that can be on campus with the with the folk who is severely mentally ill to help keep them going. So housing, money, loving, nurturing, caring trained individuals hmm. need to be in place. You always think, well there's gotta be somewhere that somewhere they can live and have the kind of support. There's gotta be someplace. That's what I always thought. And I'm like, no, <laughs> there isn't. How do you stay hopeful? You know, I, I, I know there's good in the world. I, I, I do just pray that John will feel some happiness in his life. His happiness may not be what my happiness would feel like, but I just want him to feel some happiness, some joy. Haven't seen that yet for him, and that's that's very painful for me. And I'm not sure that he'll ever get there, but I keep, I keep praying for that. I, I, I don't know if I have... An answer for how I keep going, except for the fact that I just know that I'm, I have to be strong enough to keep myself going, because if I don't keep myself going, I won't be of any good to anybody else. You are retiring. Who are you telling us to look to now for our caregiver tips, for the beautiful words you have? Who shall we ask when we can't ask Dr. Lloyd? <laughs> Other families. <laughs> well, all right, we're on it. Families with experience are, I think, one of the most amazing resources and why I think so highly of NAMI to organize these opportunities for families to talk to one another, to coach one another. I think that's where you turn. Advocate families have been coaching each other and finding grace for our loved ones for decades. Whether the system is broken, fractured, or unbuilt, it failed John and Patricia. It's failing all of us. Who John could have been was lost to indifference, criminalization, racism, poor mental illness laws, and medical system buck passing. For many of us, it's too late for our loved ones. They sacrificed their rights to this broken system. But as caregiver advocates, we have the right to build what could have saved them. Please visit treatmentadvocacycenter.org to find out how you can advocate to build a system where all entry points lead to a full continuum of collaborative medical care so that more of our loved ones get into treatment and experience the right to be well. Thank you for joining us on Make Them Hear You. Until next time, only good things. <laughs>